Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations about radically different ideas, people, and companies. Sometimes we have on a billionaire entrepreneur or a thought-provoking leading author or a champion athlete or like recently, the real DEA narcos. Uh, but it's always different. We've been called the biggest box of chocolates on the internet. <laughs> and like going to business school in the back of a dive bar. <laughs> anyway, we sure hope you dig it. On this episode, Rob Markey of Bain and & Company. And um, we have a fascinating discussion about his recent breakthrough piece for the Harvard Business Review called Are You Undervaluing Your Customers? Uh, Rob leads the Net Promoter Score Loyalty Forum, and his firm, Bain & Company, invented NPS, Net Promoter Score. We have a fantastic conversation about why companies with higher levels of customer loyalty grow two and a half times faster than their peers, according to their research, how companies should reorient around customers, why customer loyalty is a shareholder priority, and a whole lot more. If you care about customers, you care about growth, then I think you're going to love this podcast. Um, now, during times of uncertainty, there's nothing more important than being on top of your key numbers, uh, financials, and metrics. Particularly like things like your cash position, your accounts receivable, accounts payable, inventory, orders, uh, and so much more. That's why companies that thrive trust NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite offers you a complete picture of all of your finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. NetSuite is the platform in the cloud for running a legendary business. To schedule your free demo right now and to receive your free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits, visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite business grows here. Uh, now, <laughs> hey ho, let's go. It is such a pleasure to to join you. Yeah, thanks. And I think this article you wrote could be a book. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it, you know, I, it, it actually started not not as a book idea or anything. It started as a source of frustration and curiosity for me related to why it is that companies that I had worked with over the years to, you know, institute really good customer-centric practices and policies and products why those companies ended up abandoning them in some way, shape, or form over time. And you talk a lot about, uh, or you, you seem to em emphasize, this sort of short-term focus on quarterly earnings. Is that the primary reason, or, or maybe kind of pop the hood on that for me? Well, I think there are a number of things that conspire against a focus on growing the value of a customer base. I think the first one is that even companies that are, you know, public companies that are absolutely intent on doing good things for their customers end up coming under pressure eventually to deliver earnings. And it's easier in many cases to, I don't know, fire some of the folks in the call center, institute higher fees on the back end, you know, nuisance fees, 
change your policy about returns. Like that's easier than the hard stuff. You're not talking about Comcast, are you? I am not talking about any particular <laughs> company. And, I, and, and it's important to emphasize, I've been doing this for 30 years and I have seen wonderful companies, companies that are known for being really great with customers do terrible things when it comes time to meet an earnings goal. And, and those earnings goals are often not what the management team wanted, but instead what analysts and investors pressured them to do. So that that is one absolutely crucial force is that investors put pressure on management teams who then are forced to squeeze out every last dollar in order to make a goal that is just a short-term goal. But I don't think that's the only thing. Yeah, well, sure. But uh, on this one, what I'm curious to get to is in my life, and I'm sure it's similar in yours, but I want to hear, I've met and worked with CEOs who believed deeply in something they were doing that might in a near-term negatively short uh, or negatively impact earnings, but had the courage to stand up and say, hey, we're making this business model change or we're doing this expansion or, you know, whatever the whatever the well-thought-out strategic reason for not making um, the numbers line the way uh, the models, uh, the analyst models have them set up and sort of have the backbone and courage to say, hey, listen, this is an important thing. We're going to do this. This is going to be the impact and sort of one way or another say, get over it versus the CEO who, to your point, maybe sees the strategic value in doing something like that, but does end up uh, sort of being tied to prior models and, and and so forth. And so what what do you think is sort of the the difference between a CEO who can who can make this work versus a CEO who can't? Well, interestingly, um you're describing this almost as if it is a um a test of character, like good CEO versus bad CEO. And I think historically that is the way it's had to be. It's it's had to be that a visionary CEO was willing to make a bold move and take a risk by declaring, I'm about shareholders, sorry, I'm about customers. Shareholders, you're going to have to trust me that this is going to play out over the long term. And when they're good, they're compelling and able to convince shareholders to let them keep their job long enough for it to play out. You know, I, I wrote in the article about David Thody at Telstra. You know, on day one of his tenure, he said, I'm all about the customers. And he made a very bold move, set of moves that sacrificed short-term earnings for long-term gain. And, and it was very successful. Investors supported him and so on. But it shouldn't have to be that it's just the bold, uh, visionary CEO who does the right thing for customers. And that's that's the issue. You know, yes. There are people who understand customers intimately and who have the cojones to go to their investors, their board and say, I'm going to do something that's really important and I'm going to make it work, but you're not going to see the results for a little while. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I think I'm reading this right, but you'll tell me. I think one of the arguments you're making here is, uh, first of all, you make an economic argument, which I definitely want us to get to around why this is a smart thing to do. But above and beyond that, if we look at this particular issue, that there needs to be a a metric or a measure that companies start reporting this on that is somewhat standardized so that people now have 
a way of looking at this thing in the context of a of a quarterly earnings call. At least that's how I'm in, how I'm reading what you're saying. But how do you think about it? I think that's one way to do it. And and I have to admit that for maybe the first 15 or 20 years of my career, what I believed was we need a countervailing metric to go against net earnings that would be something that would hold up to guide management teams and investors towards the right way of doing things. What I think I discovered is that the world is a much more complicated place than that. It is very hard to put your finger on just one metric that will lead you in the right way. And there's no agreement about what that metric is. And, and, you know, if anybody knows this, it's the guy who is behind net promoter. Like it's controversial. Although I, I hate to interrupt you, but the net promoter score has become an industry standard and. And there absolutely are companies that talk about it on their earnings calls. So you you did it once. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I, are you trying to do it again? I, I did it, but I only did it part way. And I I um I take some responsibility for this. So uh, NPS is is part of the answer. Net promoter score is the best single question metric we have that enables you to see how a an individual uh, customer or a set of customers feel about the business in ways that then align with lifetime value. And in fact, that was the objective function that we used was customer lifetime value when we were searching around for the right question to ask. Having said that, um, it's just a proxy. And there are lots of ways to collect a net promoter score. You can do it after an interaction with a customer, you can do it as part of a relationship, or you can do it in a mode of market research where you do double blind research and get a very reliable apples to apples comparison among different companies. It turns out that for investors, the only one that really matters is the competitive benchmark based on market research double blind. That benchmark is the most reliable thing for an investor. Yes, period over period improvements on touch points or relationships is good. But as an outsider, I don't know whether you changed methodology. I don't know whether you changed sampling. I don't, you know, I I can't evaluate it. And so I don't blame investors for not trusting companies who talk about their net promoter scores on earnings calls for not trusting that. Hmm. Because you think they're sort of cherry picking NPS data to their advantage. Of course they are. And, and, and this actually comes to the heart of it, which is there are no standards. There are no rules guiding companies about what they must or may say to investors about their, the health of their customer relationships. Hmm. And so uh, obviously you put a lot of time and energy into thinking about this and, and writing about this. And so what are the things that you think companies should be talking about in a way that's going to be, uh, I, I don't know if this is the right term, you'll tell me, more transparent, if you will, with investors? So I think the conclusion that I came to, and, and it was a hard conclusion to come to, was that we should not rely on the companies themselves to do calculations on behalf of investors. Instead, we should make it easy on the companies to disclose information that they already have 
that investors can use themselves to do the valuation. In, in, in essence, what, what I'm saying is, rather than try to come up with some new metric, let's actually let investors in to see what the health of the customer relationships is so that they can use that to do better future cash flow projections informed by things like how many new customers you're acquiring, what it costs to acquire new customers, how those customers are performing, you know, revenue and losses and costs, and how long you're keeping them. Those are really the essential metrics. And having grown up in the software business, those are the types of things typically software companies have talked about. And of course, over the last 20 years or so, we've had this massive shift to uh, a subscription or a SaaS business model. And, you know, I think part of why that has happened, I'm curious, I say this to get your reaction, is that a reoccurring subscription business model uh, from a cash flow perspective and from a lifetime value perspective is actually more interesting to shareholders. And from a business model perspective, it's sort of, you know, you got to force it every time there's a renewal. And so it, it, it encourages um, good behavior on behalf of the technology provider as it relates to customers because there's a renewal coming as opposed to a one-time buy and see you later. But uh, that's sort of my simple synopsis. I, I'm curious what you think about sort of that shift in the technology industry and how, how it sort of plays out in terms of customer value over time. Well, I love that because I think software as a service is really a way of revealing an underlying truth that was already there, which is if you sell a customer a piece of software that they don't get full value out of, they're not going to continue to use it and they're not going to be a recurring customer. And so what I love about software as a service is that it creates an inherent incentive for the software firm to sell to the right customer something that actually meets their needs and ensure that the customer is able to get full value out of it by deploying it in the right ways and getting the people within the organization to use it in the right ways to create value. And, and in yeah. that way, they earn a renewal. They earn a, way, a you know additional modules and product sales and services that enable them to make more money. That's, that's a good deal. And of course, we've seen this massive transformation. I mean, I, I know you see it. I, I have companies trying to get me to subscribe to underwear, Rob. Yeah, well. Right? Like uh, I, <laughs> everything we, we that have, was a product, they're turning into a service. <laughs> we may have swung a little far. We may be hitting the other guardrail <laughs> at the moment. Um, I think there's a little bit of extra enthusiasm for subscription models, and uh, I understand why that is. But at the end of the day, it's really all an attempt by these companies to reflect an underlying truth, which is that products that we we use and and that we like end up needing to be replaced occasionally. And if the company has earned our business, they'll get a repeat sale. So should underwear be sold as a service, you know, on a subscription? I don't know. I, personally, I'm not a buyer, but uh, I. <laughs> should, should uh, any number of other things that historically were paid for on a one-off basis be done as a subscription? Well, if, if there's 
real value to sustaining a relationship. And if the company is willing to add more value incrementally, month by month, quarter by quarter, year by year, then absolutely it makes sense. Now, in this new HBR article, um, you dig into some fascinating research. Um, and there's a connection between, you know, I think, I don't know, the probably the most important thing that companies uh, leadership want to do, which is grow revenue in an enduring way over time, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's in a big part what you get paid to do as senior executives. And so you made a direct connection between revenue growth and customer loyalty. Could you kind of walk me through the research and sort of the key conclusions you have here? Yeah, absolutely. We have looked for years for evidence that there are ways to predict that one company will outperform its competitors in some way, shape, or form. And lots of companies do this. What um, we've done most recently is looked at companies who were loyalty leaders in their industry space for three or more years and then followed their performance for the subsequent 10 years. And what we found was three important things. One, that those companies outgrew their competitors by over two and a half times on average. Two, that they did so with lower cost, better margins. And three, unsurprisingly, when you have the first two, their their stocks significantly outperformed their peers. If you invested in those companies at the end of that three-year period where they were the leader and you held that for the next 10 years, your total shareholder return would be between two and five times the return of investments in their competitors. It's a good bet. And so, I mean, you've really, you've laid the economic argument out about as clearly (laughs) as it can be laid out. It's very compelling research. Well, thank you. It was a pain in the behind to do. I bet it was. It, you know, it's it's really important to establish clarity about this. And I think that historically, a number of, I mean, it just makes sense, right? That a company that keeps its customers longer, gets them to buy more and gets them even to tell their friends is going to grow faster than their competitors. But I think that there are a lot of executives who really need to see it in order to be convinced. And so now we have it. Well, excellent work. And I've been dying. This is the question I'm sort of really dying to uh, ask you, see if we can connect some dots together. One of the areas of fascination for me right now, in particular with my buddy, Eddie Yoon, Mm -hmm. is this notion of a data flywheel that if you're able to use um, data to sort of track a whole set of things around your customers, Mm -hmm. that one of the things that happens as a, as a new category of product or service emerges, the company that is doing the best job, particularly in the areas that you describe sort of broadly as customer loyalty, mm-hmm. if they are capturing data across the, for lack of a better term, customer lifecycle, so marketing, sales, service, the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're tracking that data to, to have insights around way customers buy and things they want to buy, you know, all the, all the good things that we would love to know. Mm-hmm. And they create this data flywheel. It allows them to drive growth in a way that competitors can't, which puts them in a position to be the category queen or category king business and have a dominant position. And the way this data flywheel spins it really becomes something insurmountable. You know, one of the areas that everybody likes to speculate about right now, of course, is the streaming wars and Netflix mm-hmm. versus everybody else. And, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I would contend that Netflix, their data flywheel and level of customer intimacy is such that, yes, is, are some of the competitors going to take some market share? Sure. But I think what's actually going to happen is the overall market category is actually going to get bigger. But that's just my theory. Mm. I'm very curious how you <laughs> connect, Rob, sort of customer loyalty and the growth research you've done with the ability to also kind of um, get get intimate through data. <laughs> if I could put it well, that way. Yeah, I mean, this is the, in, in some ways, the holy grail for a lot of companies is trying to figure out, you know, we've got this huge customer base. How do we leverage what we know about these customers in order to not only make more money ourselves, but then in some other way, create value for the customers or create value for other companies. And so, yes, you see companies like Netflix who know a lot about the viewing habits of their customers and who can see not only what you browsed and what you started and stopped before it ended and so on, but also in some cases have, you know, ratings of those things. You've got companies like Amazon, which created a marketplace explicitly for the purpose of identifying additional products and services that they could provide beyond what was in their their core i think that the you know there is a tremendous value in accumulating data on your customers and their purchase behaviors and so on but there's even more value in the testing that companies do and what they learn out of that testing, because that is proprietary. That is something that is very hard for a competitor to get their hands on or to replicate. And so to me, one of the most important things that happens when you've got a growing customer base is that you get a larger population on which to run tests. And it gives you the ability to accumulate learning faster than your competitors do. And to me, that's where the flywheel you know, concept comes into play. You succeed at earning your customer's loyalty. You can test new things quickly. You get reaction. You can adjust. Exactly. And, and as you gain, as you grow the number of customers and as you earn their active support for your business, you get two things. One, a larger population on which to test, as we talked about. And two, people who are rooting for your success in a way that then sets them up so that they're willing to give you feedback and to help you learn more about how to serve their needs better. And that's, you know, that's hard, that's hard to get. There are not many companies that I'm willing to spend my time investing in to help them be successful. Well, and so that that's a very cool thing, right? And of course, that's that's what we want, what my buddy Eddie Yoon calls super consumers. Mm-hmm. And then you, you mentioned Amazon. One of the things that fascinates me about Amazon, I don't know why more people don't talk about this. They charge 150 bucks a year to be a customer, right? Isn't that what Amazon Prime costs? It is, it is. Although you don't have to, to pay that. No, no, I understand that part, but like, they, they've gone hard <laughs> to the hoop on getting everybody to pay 150. They've made it compelling. Well, and so did Costco, know. right? So did. In the physical world, right? And it's just a fascinating thing from a, so I, I'm, I'm curious to get your reaction from a reoccurring revenue and a lifetime value perspective, mm-hmm. this notion of, of getting people to pay to be customers. Well, I think that in the case of Amazon Prime, um, there are at least two components to what you're buying as a customer. One is you're buying, in essence, free shipping. 
right? And that actually has a hard dollar value that is easy to equate. And you can say, boy, if I just buy X number of products worth about Y dollars, I'm going to more than save the amount of the annual fee in shipping. That, that, that is just a, a, a value exchange on some level. Another level on which Amazon Prime works, however, is in um, giving you access to things that you might not otherwise have gained. So entertainment, special deals, and so on, that uh, at least you perceive is part of the value proposition of joining Prime. You know, I like to compare it to Costco or to Sam's Club because the value proposition is roughly similar. You know, mm-hmm. in order, I can enter a Sam's Club without being a member. I just can't buy buy anything or, mm-hmm. or Costco. Once I join, though, I get access to products at prices that I just couldn't get anywhere else. And it's partly that, which is a, a value exchange, and it's partly this somewhat enjoyable experience of discovering new products, discovering interesting deals that, uh, you know, I walk out of these places with baskets full of stuff that I had no intention of buying when I walked in. And maybe <laughs> a few weeks afterwards, I wonder why I bought. <laughs> it's funny. This is a bit of a non sequitur, but I was uh, listening to an episode of one of my favorite podcasts called Grumpy Old Geeks, and they were talking about the size of the economy for drunk online purchasing. And it's in the many, I forget the number now, but it's many billions. And I don't know who tracks drunk purchasing, but <laughs> it's kind of like that, right? You walk in and you're like, well, I didn't want to buy this whole giant platter of shrimp, but it really smells good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I doubt that it smelled good, but the it probably looked good. I, I think- I um, meant, you know, when they give the tasters out and no, all that I, stuff. I, I, know, I'm I don't mean rotting in the box. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think that- um, Partly you're by, you're gaining access to an experience when you do these things and it makes it easier and more fun and there's a bit of discovery in it and they've earned their place, right? They've earned your, your business. And the reason that in the early days, anybody shopped on Amazon was because a friend said, Hey, you won't believe how easy this is. It wasn't because Amazon was advertising on TV. Same thing with Costco. You know, why do, why, why does anybody ever walk into a Costco for the first time? It's not because they saw an ad on TV or they got some sort of solicitation. It's because a friend told them the deals there are amazing. And so what do you think the implications of, you know, what these companies have done in sort of uh, uh, maybe non-traditional ways, if I could call them that, to, to engender customer uh, loyalty? What do you think the learnings are for other businesses? Well, you know, it's funny. My my grandfather was a um, what's called a provisioner. He sold meat to wholesale meat to restaurants and hotels and so on. He knew every single one of his customers. He knew their business intimately. He knew whether to extend credit or not. He the good customers he would he would make sure got the you know, best cuts of meat when he was running low and couldn't provide it to everybody who had ordered it. The best companies just, you know, at scale act like a small businessman that my grandfather was. They 
understand their customers so well, even if it's in, in a, um, technologically enabled way. They understand their customers so well that they anticipate their needs. They make the best products available to them at the best prices. And they basically engage in a relationship with those customers such that the customers feel some sense of, I won't say obligation, but I mean, the word is loyalty, some sense of commitment to the success of that company. They forgive them when a mistake happens. They, yes. they're able to, to, you know, something bad happens and they say, oh, well, that's just one bad thing. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about that later. With companies we love, we'll do that. I mean, I'm a, uh, around here, they call them Patagucci, Pat- Patagonia <laughs> lover. And they make great products. I actually use them out in the woods and, you know, where they're supposed to be used. And, and I wear them around town and, and uh, you're absolutely right. With companies like that, that we have an affinity towards, we're going to cut Patagonia a lot of slack because we think they're a great company that makes legendary products that really speaks to us. I think the challenge here is doing it at large scale. It's doing it in a company the size of a Costco or a Walmart or even something somewhat smaller, but um, still large. Like I think that you need f- at least four things in place, right? One is you need leaders who really do value the lifetime, you know, the the relationship with customers and who view that as the thing to grow, the thing to optimize in the business. Second, you need to arm people with the tools, meaning the employees with the tools to manage that lifetime value. So you have to give them lifetime value models. You have to provide reporting on things like cohort performance and uh, new customer acquisition cost and the uh, revenue yield on different groups and segments of customers. The things that contribute at the customer level to long-term growth. Three, I think that it's really crucial to break down and this is this is something that we haven't touched on yet but break down the internal barriers to doing the right thing for customers in most companies they're organized around product and functional groups and those groups are important for developing expertise and accountability and historically in you know the business world they were the backbone of the way that a business was managed. Unfortunately, it's just human nature to regard people who are in your group, your functional team, your product team, as the in-group, the group that you care about and whose needs you meet and so on. Are you saying most corporations are like high school? <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I, I'm saying. I'm saying. And, and by the way, it's it's um, it's really easy to you know poke poke fun at um, silos and to to criticize people for silo mentality. And I think that that is misguided because it's actually a phenomenon of human social psychology. Like it is 
deeply encoded in our DNA to trust the people we're closest to and with whom we identify and not trust people who are outside of our group. And there are all kinds of layers to that, but it even happens. I mean, it, it importantly happens between marketing and sales, between the product team and risk management, between operations and the product team. Like everybody in an organization of affiliates with their own team first. Makes sense. Yeah. But as long as you're focused on the needs of your team, functional team, ahead of everything else, you're going to let customer needs fall lower down the priority list. And so the companies that I see making the most enduring progress are companies that are now reorganizing the day-to-day work of not the entire organization, but select parts of the organization around specific customer needs. And they're actually, they they may not talk in these terms, they may not intend to do it, but they're actually taking advantage of that sort of tribalism that, and, and creating the affinity, the identity around a customer need instead of around a functional team's needs. Hmm. So maybe what we might call in the tech business, use cases. can be use cases. It can be, um, I'll give you an example of a customer need versus a product need. USAA sells auto insurance and they uh, provide auto loans. So you're you're a, a, a member at USAA and you go out to buy a car you know, part of the process is, oh, I got to find a loan for this so I can pay for it. And another part of the process is, oh, before I can drive it off the lot, I have to have insurance. Now, in the old days, the product teams at USAA were each focused on providing the members with the best product they could in the context of their own competitive set. And the team working on Uh, auto loans and the team working on auto insurance really didn't spend a lot of time talking to each other or worrying about what the other one was doing other than a little bit of rivalry over earnings and resources and stuff like that. Not too long ago, they recognized that um, in that structure, they were creating friction for their members and internally, and it was costing them time to market and it was costing them in member satisfaction. So they reimagined what the issue was. The issue is you got a, and this is maybe a use case, right? A, a service person returning from overseas assignment, and now they need a car. They're in their 20s. And if they're, you know, let's say they're a male, they want a muscle car, they want the best, biggest you know, noisiest thing they can get so that they can yes, get. Yes, we do. We love those. Yeah. I want to, I want to get the women. I just like driving the cars. Well, I mean, there's that I like too. the women too. <laughs> there's that too. The right. But, it, but that this whole mentality of, you know, like I want to buy the biggest, best, uh, most powerful car I can get. And that was creating all kinds of problems because on the one hand, these guys were really excited about their cars, but they had trouble getting financing because they were stretching a lot on uh, what they could afford. Moreover, insurance on that kind of car for somebody that that age 
is really expensive. And, and if all you're doing is intervening at the point where somebody needs um, a loan or needs insurance, you're stuck with whatever decision they made. If, on the other hand, you reconceptualize it as, hey, this, this member needs a way to get themselves from work to home and home to work from, they need something that will, you know, they need transportation. Then you can actually engage in a dialogue with them about, well, what are your transportation needs? What it, what, and what about that is important to you? Is it the way it looks, the way it feels, the way that it drives? Is it the cost? You know, what, and, and how does that fit within your life? And so what USAA has done is created their teams around securing transportation. One tiny part of which is getting the, the funding for it. And another tiny part of it is getting the insurance protection. And that has created growth in, in, in loan sales and growth in insurance sales, but it's also dramatically improved the experience of members buying their cars and their loyalty to USAA. So do you think, you know, one of the things I hear companies talk about is, is, is the customer journey and we want to understand mm-hmm. the customer journey and then we want to kind of decide where, where we want to play and help the customer along that journey. And that, that's what that story sort of elicits to my mind is when you think about in the context of what's the returning service member trying to accomplish here, mm-hmm. as opposed to how much insurance did we sell this quarter? Mm-hmm. Um, and so do you see more companies ultimately kind of organizing, if I could call it that, or you tell me how you want me to think about it, but in the context of a customer journey to get to a particular outcome? Yeah, I would say, I would call it um, developing an operating model meaning a way of making decisions and getting work done more than it is necessarily a way of quote organizing. And yes, absolutely. This is something that is difficult to do and very worth it. And so you'll see a small number of companies at first and a growing, but growing over the next say five to 10 years who take this leap and adopt a customer needs oriented operating model for parts of their business. I love it. Rob, anything else you'd like to touch on before we kick out? No, I, I, you know, in in case you couldn't tell, I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So do I. (laughs) I, I, You know, the, the one thing I'd leave you with is I think we're on the verge of a very large change in the way people think about the purpose of a company and the objectives of a business. You know, it's not just shareholder value anymore. And I think that's a good thing, but we need to be clear about what it is we're trying to create. So if it's not just shareholder value, what else is it? And I think we need very clear, clean metrics to guide us. And to me, the best way to improve the societal outcomes as well as the shareholders outcomes is to get people focused on growing the total value of a company's customer base, not just delivering this quarter's earnings. Well said. You should think about a job in sort of consulting and thought leadership. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll, I'll take that under consideration. (laughs) And I want to thank you for writing a fantastically researched, incredibly well thought out piece. You know, I have a sense of what it takes to do something like that. And uh, it's a great piece of work. Well, thank you so much. 
And uh, you're welcome back anytime you have uh, more deep thoughts you want to share. I think you're a fantastic guy, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there he is, Rob Markey from Bain & Company. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. All right. We would like to thank Rob Markey himself. You can check out his new HBR article uh, titled, Are You Undervaluing Your Customers? Go to Lockhead.com and you can find it in the show notes or you can find it at HBR. Uh, OneLifeFullyLive.org. Dream, plan, and live your best life. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale you with the power of a virtual assistant. Why not check out Bottleneck.online today? Uh, Fusion, doing legendary marketing, PR, and graphic design in Ireland. Check them out at F-U-Z-I-O-N.ie. Is it time for you to um, uh, take your career to the whole, a whole new level? Why not crash your career? Visit crash.co slash different and uh, get your free handbook about crashing your career. Crash.co slash different. And uh, let's not forget the good folks at Habitat for Humanity. Uh, check out habitat.org. All right, I want to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Warning, this podcast goes way better with libations. I certainly look a lot better, I'll tell you. <laughs> you can find us at L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, lockhead.com. And if you really want to send us email, email to blackhole, all one word, at lockhead.com. We are produced and edited by Living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo, technical wizardry website and more by Sarah Knox and Jamie J, and show notes by the legendary Diane Gervasio. Don't forget to be nice to your customers, buy John's crazy socks, tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Don't be lame, get out of the passing lane. Listen to the Ramones, only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people too. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please take good care of yourself. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.